3: I'm the senior assistant minister at Christ Universal Temple in Chicago, Illinois, where the Reverend Derek B. Wells is the senior minister. The Reverend Doctor Johnny Coleman is the founder. You can check out Christ Universal Temple at www.cutemple.org That's C U T E M C U T E M P L E dot org to get more information about uh, this uh, our powerful new thought uh, ministry. Check us out. Today we are covering chapter five in the book, The Eye of the Storm, by Gary Simmons. As you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, I requested that everyone who follows along actually purchase the book, The Eye of the Storm, by Gary Simmons. It's only $13.95. And I'm sure you can get it for less online, Amazon.com, etc. Today we're going to be talking about the four winds of conflict and the idea behind this book, again, is how do you embrace conflict and create peace? How do you function as the I, capital I, the I am, in the midst of the experiences of life, which, uh, which many times are the winds of conflict? How do, you, how do you authentically function in that space? And that's what this book is about. It's basically showing us or giving us a roadmap of how you apply spiritual principle to everyday living so let's get right to it on page 80 he wrote under the four winds of conflict that's the name of this chapter the four winds of conflict now let's look at the conditions that support the storm which is conflict i call them the four winds of conflict By now you understand that conflict in your life is evidence of not being fully present or authentic in a particular situation or relationship. So when we are caught up in the winds of conflict, when we're caught up in the storms of life, somewhere we're not fully present to who we are in God and who God is in us. So we have to be really present to how am I showing up as the presence of God in this experience? How am I showing up as love? How am I showing up as wisdom? How am I showing up as life? How am I showing up as power? How am I showing up as love and and substance, supply, whatever? We need to be mindful of that. Alright. He goes on to say, Conflict is the effect of a complex array of influences. Now, that means that it's a lot of things that create what we call conflict, but they're all effects. They're never, the conflict is never the cause, it's always the effect. The conflict is what you see, but it always has a cause. As Emmett Fox wrote many years ago, all causation is mental. Which means that when we start talking about dealing with the, the storms of life, the effects of life, even what we call the positive, constructive, spiritual effects of life, it always starts with consciousness first. So let's get right to it. He says on page 81, the four winds or conditions that support the storm are separation. Misperception, competition, and defensiveness. I'm going to repeat those. The four winds or conditions that support the storm are separation, misperception, competition, and defensiveness. All right. He goes on to say, the pivotal component in the conflict equation is how you feel About yourself. So, regardless of what's going on in your space, how do you feel? How do you perceive the situation? Who are you choosing to be in the midst of the storm or the conflict? All right. He goes on to say, I love this. He uses the example he says, "Uh, When you are tired, hungry, angry, lonely, or depressed, the factors that support conflict are. accentuated being on the edge and feeling insecure unsure of yourself are also contributing factors you are susceptible to conflict much in the same way as you're susceptible to getting a cold or an infection when your stress level is high and your immune system is weak the likelihood of breakdowns increase in other words when we're not physically where we need to be the possibility of something happening happening physically increases Well, when we're not where we need to be mentally, when we're not where we need to be emotionally, when we're not in certain levels of high spiritual consciousness, the possibility of conflict increases and the possibility of being swept up by that conflict also increases. So when you find yourself getting irritated, frustrated, and angry a lot, I'm not saying it's never going to happen, but a lot. When you find yourself being snappy, when you find yourself um taking out your frustrations on those who love and support you, you might need to take a step back. I would suggest you take a step back and evaluate what's really going on in your soul. What's going on in your body that might be causing some areas of concern that's shifting your attention away from your spiritual wholeness. I've seen it time and time again that uh, many times when people are in pain, they get mean. When people have endured long-standing long health challenges, they can get mean. I'm not judging that. Because I don't know what it means to be in pain for years or things of that nature. What I recognize, though, is some people who go through those situations don't get mean. Some people still focus on what they can do, not on what they can't do. And some people get really mean and stop attempting to do anything. So
4: there are some people who for instance have conflict at work but they make the people at home pay that doesn't work or they take the conflict from home
3: with the significant other spouse children parents siblings friends whatever and they bring that to work and that doesn't work either I'm sure you run You run across an individual, or that individual might have been you, that had something that was really upsetting them, and it really affected your work performance. Because when your soul is out of balance, stuff just doesn't work right. It's not in divine order. So let's deal with the sense of separation first, all right? And... Gary says some really powerful statements about separation, the sense of separation. Remember, you can never be separate from God, but you can have a sense of separation, a consciousness of separation, which means you function out of that belief system, out of that paradigm, out of that context. Anyway, he wrote on page 81 you were born into a world that was unable to mirror your innate worth to a degree, which would allow you to emerge into adulthood with your sense of wholeness intact. So in other words, we're born into this dynamic, always changing, always evolving world that does not necessarily promote or even inform you of your divine nature. So, we tend to come into a fragmented mindset now, this is the metaphysical equivalent of the what allegorically is taught the fall of man, not from the standpoint of Adam and Eve that really lived that ate a fruit, and now people you know are you know hell bound unless you know they get saved by Jesus. I mean it from the standpoint of being born into a context of what it means to be a human being at whatever uh era of humanity you you lived in so a person who was born in in Saudi Arabia around 700 AD or or CE common era had a context of what it meant to be a human being in that era in that time in that culture just as much as you have Uh, context of what it means to be your gender, your race, your age, your uh, nationality, etc. In your era of the 21st century, we all live within a context. So, But the human race, as Fillmore called it, race consciousness, has a belief system that we all function through,
4: and we're born into this. And we pick it up unconsciously. And we don't even realize it. It's universal human beliefs. They
3: evolve. And we have to continually to evolve it and spiritualize it. You know, when, you know, the old uh, Christian folks were like, uh, everybody's born in sin. That's a if you change it into the context of born into an an awareness that doesn't understand our innate wholeness, then you get it. Now, I'm not a proponent, so don't say Reverend McDowell went out there and said people are born in sin. That's not what I'm saying. I'm relating it back to what was taught to us previously and bridging it to a metaphysical understanding that
4: everyone who physically incarnates, which is Or incarnation to this world
3: is born into a context of what it means to be a human being many times outside of the understanding of what it means to be a spiritual being
4: and that's missing the mark anyway back to the book he goes on to say uh, giving
3: examples of you know parents who did the best they could but didn't always get it right so he says, so we developed mechanisms to handle life in this sense of separation. He says, separation was a way of avoiding pain, the pain of being too close, too vulnerable, and too innocent. I tell people this all the time. When people say things like surrender to God, people have a hard time with that because people don't want to surrender to anything or anyone because people don't like being vulnerable. Because somewhere in the past, being vulnerable got them hurt. Fully trusting someone got them hurt. And when the preacher then or the priest or the the man or the rabbi or the guru or, or whatever says trust, surrender, that triggers or can trigger a sense of vulnerability. That people don't like to feel. It's like in the Adam and Eve story again. When Adam and Eve were hiding in the garden, when they became aware of what they were doing and what they shouldn't have been doing. And in the story, it says God said to Adam, who told you you were naked?
4: Because Adam in the story was ashamed. Who told you you were naked? Who told you you weren't enough?
3: Who told you you didn't have the power to transform your life? Who told you that you that you have to be sick? Who told you that you have to be broke? Who told you that you don't that you can't have the life you desire? Who told you you can't go after your goals? Who told you that you're limited by gender, by race, by age or
4: education? Who told you that? Who told you? See we don't, when
3: we are functioning in a sense of duality and a sense of separation, we detach ourselves mentally from the source of our well being, of our wholeness, and we live as though we are in a far country like the prodigal son.
4: When we really need to come home to the Father, the consciousness of truth the spirit of God, divine mind. All right. So he goes on to say, on page 82, the sense of separation
3: you feel within yourself between others and in life generally is an effect of being born in an imperfect caregiving environment. It's the bottom line. A world that's always telling you
4: Consciously and unconsciously, that it's never enough. Never enough of what you need.
3: Never enough to be happy. You have to look a certain way, dress a certain way, drive a certain way, live certain places, etc. I'm not saying don't have lofty goals, have them. But realize that your goals don't define you and your
4: stuff does not define you. You define you. You do. And your wholeness is not even defined by you. Your wholeness just is. Because your wholeness is from God. Your wholeness is God. And that makes a big difference. So what I want to really drill in is once you become conscious
3: That you were born into an imperfect caregiving environment doesn't make a difference. How loving your parents were doesn't make a difference. How supportive the systems and the education and all of that was, and the best neighborhoods, etc. It's still an imperfect caregiving system because most of those systems don't support the divinity within you. But now that you've become conscious, you have the opportunity and the choice to. Put those beliefs behind you and choose to be the person that you were created to be, a spiritual being expressing love, peace, joy, prosperity, and well-being. You can make that choice now. So once you become aware, it's time to put down the crutches. It's time to put down the excuses. It's time to put down blaming people for what they didn't do. It's time to get to work. It's time to pick up the book and read it. You read this book or any other book. It's time to pray. It's time to meditate. It's time to study. It's time to get in class. It's time to go to workshops. It's time to get on purpose. It's time to get on mission. It's time to
4: give and serve, give back to life. So I just want to make that really present to you. You know, it's sort of like in the movie, The Last Dragon,
3: when Nuff said to Bruce Leroy, playtime's over, boy. Playtime's over. You are, you have been awakened to who you are. Playtime's over. So it is time for our first break. We'll be right back with Truth Transforms.
2: As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach to the world, we count on the support of listeners like you. Please make your donation today. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. If you've ever wondered how a specific Bible verse might be interpreted metaphysically, then Interpret This is for you. In Interpret This, Unity Minister Rev. Ed Townley answers your questions about the Bible and how to apply its verses to your life with passion, depth, and spiritual insight. To submit a question or to enjoy any of his numerous metaphysical interpretations, visit unity.org and click on the Interpret This box. Thank you for tuning in to Truth Transforms. Now, here's your host, Reverend Galen McDowell.
3: All right. Welcome back to Truth Transforms. I want to remind you that this show, along with all the other shows on Unity Online Radio, is supported by your donations. So please go to unity.fm. Click on the Donate button and help support this online ministry. Your donations help support the ministry, sending lessons, sending blessings, sending this New Thought empowering message all around the world. We get messages from people from other countries in the Middle East, and Central and South America, in Canada, Canada. Uh, Etc. People are listening everywhere, Africa, etc. So please understand that what you support is helping to lift the consciousness of the world that I just talked about being born into an imperfect caregiving system. Just think about how that system can shift with this type of teaching. All right. Back to the book. All right. So he wrote on page 82 that. In order to manage a separate existence, you have learned how to control others, avoid conflict, resist change, and be right. Those four things are really important. So in other words, to deal with the conflicts of life, first thing we try to do is control others. How can I keep control of this situation? Some folks need to have everything in control or they can't function. They can't have any loose parts. They can't have people off doing anything that they don't agree with. Then we learn how to avoid conflict. Well, if I can't control it, I'll avoid it. You know, I'll even avoid when the bills come in the mailbox. I won't open the mail because I don't want to deal with the a conflict of me thinking that I don't have what I need to have to address what's the demand of the what's in the envelope. We resist change. We don't want things to stay the same. So, you know, you know, politics, family, uh, it could be religion. It could be philosophies. It could be a lot of things. It could be family traditions. Uh, Don't change this. This is the way we did it. Um, You know, I I love the example of the woman who went to her, uh, whose husband went to her and said, hey, honey, how come you always cut the edge of the ham? off when you cook it in the oven. And he said, well, she said, well, that's how my mother did it. So she went to her mother and said, well, mom, how come you always cut the butt of the ham off when you cook it? He said, well, that's how my mother taught me. So they went to the mother, the grandmother, and the grandmother said, oh, I only did that because the pan wasn't big enough. We passed down traditions And we make them gospel when it was just a choice somebody made at the time to make life work. So what we end up doing is we resist change because we fall in love with the way we wanted to do things. I was just having a conversation with someone yesterday who still has the original iPhone 4 that they like, you know, and I was telling them about, you know, the iPhone 6 I got last year, and I'm saying, well, you know, everything's better on the iPhone 6 than it was on the 4. The 4 is, you know, some upgrades you can't even do, but the person loves the way their particular iPhone works. And I'm saying, well, you know what? That's great. But it's okay to, to learn how a new phone works. It's okay to learn new practices. You know nobody would go to a doctor today who's still putting leeches on people to drain infections out of their skin, but we expect things to say the same. I used to tell my class classes when I was teaching the Bible classes that you don't have to think like a first century Jew to be a Christian today. the early Christian church has certain beliefs based upon their worldview that we don't have. I jokingly would say if they saw your cell phone. They would try to perform an exorcism. That was my way of getting them to understand that the world we live in is beyond anything they could have ever imagined.
4: So we don't have to look at God, think about God, or follow along their beliefs
3: to the letter just because they had a concept and an understanding and a breakthrough about God then. So absorb and use what you can from the past, but
4: don't be in bondage to it. God is always doing a new thing in your soul.
3: Are you present to the moment, to the now? Because yesterday's answers don't always meet the demand of today. Don't resist change because change is going to happen no matter what.
4: You know, I don't know anybody that's still logging on to AOL 3.0. Dial
3: in, you know, if you want to dial into the Internet, that's great. But it it can't handle the things that you can if you have high-speed Internet, for instance. Don't resist change.
4: Embrace it and realize that it's a part of life. People are not going to, you know, I was helping I used to,
3: you know, helping my daughter with some homework a few years ago, and it just dawned on me that, for instance, that they l- learn math differently. When I was in, she was still in grammar school at the time, she's in high school now, I learned math longhand, where you just, you know, keep writing and, you know, and underneath and underneath and underneath and underneath to break the equations down. Because I I wasn't allowed to learn with a calculator. Well, this current generation of students always have a always will have a calculator next to them when they're doing math. So my brain couldn't comprehend that. I was like, Well, how do you really know it if you only doing is computing
4: it? You gotta write it all out. But you know what? Things are just taught differently now. Just taught
3: differently. Now, you can, you know, I could try, you know, so I was about to stop and make her do it the long way. And I said, well, why would I teach her something that's not going to be applied? She's not going to use in her class. Let her work with the way it is now. I'm just using that as an example. And then it says, we also learn how to be right. We learn how to be right. And that's something that we love to do. People love to be right.
4: Now, here's the thing. When you become a right fighter, you're always making somebody wrong. Now, I'm not saying
3: that they're not right and correct ways to do things. I get that. This is not what this is talking about. This is talking about the need to dominate, the need to make somebody else wrong, the need to have to engage from an ego standpoint
4: to prove something to someone else. You don't have to be right. See, you know... You know, he says the best. He says, by being right, you circumvent the pain of your
3: past. So being right helps you cope with not being able to be present. One of the things that he talks about on page, and I got to just move on, because there's so much stuff in this book. I'll get stuck on this page. On page 83, he wrote that. You don't have a clue as to your worth of well-being without first having to look outside of yourself for evidence. That's what, what happens when we start living from this sense of separation. We, we seek validation outside of ourselves. Now, one of the things about our modern technology is we see this a lot with social media. You know, people will put up, you know, you know pictures of themselves seeking v- validation from other people uh not a judgment just an observation sometimes sometimes pictures that you know a little risqué and but they're they're seeking the validation through physical beauty or through the compliments of you know whoever they're seeking to get compliments from it's something that we need to be mindful of Am I seeking validation outside of myself? He goes on to say, when you need me to be a certain way in order for you to feel okay about yourself, you are codependent. So I'm codependent anytime I need you to be a certain way, when I need you to react a certain way, when I need you to see life a certain way, when I need you to agree with me. For me, if I need that to be okay and feel good about myself, then I'm codependent on you. All right? He said, he wrote, codependence creates a heightened sensitivity toward the actions and motives of others. You become highly vested in outcomes. Outcomes. The outcome determines if I'm a success or not. He says, you learn how to manipulate people, manipulate and control people in situations in order to manage your fears. Because you don't want anybody thinking that you don't have your stuff together. Lord knows. You can't be vulnerable. Lord knows you can't lose lord knows you know that you know i i think of the movie uh uh talladega Nights: the ballad of ricky bobby and i'm not saying that i recommend this movie for true students but i like a good laugh so i, I go where I, I find laughs where they are and in the movie his his dad says to him in a in a fit of frustration at a, at at his school As he's leaving,
4: he says, son, remember, you're either first or you're last. And then his
3: daddy was a car racer. So when Ricky Bobby became an adult, he became a NASCAR driver. And because he believed you had to be first or last, if he didn't win a race, he wrecked his car trying to win the race. It was either win or wreck because he was going to go all out without realizing that that his wholeness had nothing to do with the wins go for the win absolutely but when he says something to his dad about it later he's like he's like if you're not one you can be two three four
4: five he's like that's nonsense we take things and we just run with them we just run with them back to the book so the next paragraph says
3: codependence Code can be seen as a dependance that binds you to what is happening in your life. Your life dances around issues of what is happening to you. You depend upon situations or relationships being a certain way as if the way things are is the measure of your well-being and worth. Mm. I love that. I love that. And then the next sentence, I think it explains itself. It says codependence is an inappropriate reliance upon what's happening as the context of knowing your wholeness and worth. So you got to detach from, okay, what's happening from who I am. All right. All right, he goes on to say we need others and we need situations when we're in this consciousness. We need others and we need situations to work for the best. The problem is when we become diminished by what happens or by how things are. So, yes, we want life to work, and we want others to work in alignment with us to help life work. But I'm not diminished if I make a mistake. I'm not diminished if I don't accomplish the goal. Uh, as John Maxwell wrote, and I'm I'm probably going to teach a, a series on this next year. He wrote a book called Failing Forward. We have to learn how to fail forward, learn from the mistakes, learn from the failures, make it our friend and go forward. Next paragraph you wrote, codependence places the burden of one's well-being on the performance of someone else. Codependence places the burden of one's well-being on the performance of someone else. So my well-being is determined by what you do. That's crazy. That's insane
4: and it's unworkable because you can't control what another person does even if it's your child. The reason why discipline with children can be difficult is because that child has his or her own mind. Own mind.
3: And you might be able to control behavior, but you'll never be able to control what they think.
4: All right, back to the book. All right. It goes on to say, and the misperception, I'm just going to jump out of... uh
3: So let me one more thing on the separation. He says on page 84, in your sense of separation, you are driven to avoid what threatens you or makes you feel unsafe. You do this by trying to control others and making your life mean that people or circumstances are against you. So when we can't control it, we feel threatened by it. If we feel unsafe around it, we make it about us. And it's not about us. It's what's happening. it's just a conflict. All right, misperception, page 85, just quickly. All conflict possesses an element of misperception. All right, page 86. Our capacity to accurately read a situation is influenced by how we see things, how we hear what's being said, and how okay we feel about ourselves. So how am I perceiving this thing? How am I seeing it? 'Cause that's going to determine my performance. That's going to determine how I act. Because my performance is
4: always always mirrors what I'm seeing, what I believe to be true. My my
3: context, my paradigm is it's always what I see in life is always consistent with what I do. All right. Page eighty six. He talks about uh, Maria Neiman. He said another important factor is what psychologist Maria Neimuth termed structures of knowing. Now, I know Maria, and she's a brilliant teacher. I would suggest if you want to uh, follow up on some more of her material, I would suggest the book, The Energy of Money. I don't know if this book, You and Money, is still in print, which I actually have. But she has a book called The Energy of Money, and it is brilliant. I'm thinking about you know, I' didn't make a note to invite her on the show some uh time soon, but anyway, both our conscious and unconscious awareness have distinct boundaries, in other words, things that we accept, things that we understand, things that we believe in, all right so it's really important to understand that now, as we're coming up on our last break, and I still have a lot of stuff to cover. In this chapter, let me remind you that this show has a Facebook page. It's Truth Transforms with Reverend Galen McDowell. Please go on Facebook, like the page, share the stuff you see, make comments. Um, It's also the quickest way to get in contact with me. If you are trying to reach me, uh, you know, I, I, I check the emails because they come in frequently through the show, show's email. But people tend to contact me through by inboxing my facebook page so if you're trying to get in contact with me that's the quickest way to do it so make sure if you're not on facebook now you have a very good reason to be on it truth transforms with reverend galen mcdowell we'll be right back with truth transforms
2: Talk with Janice live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Central on Receive Your Life, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
1: And explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'll light a candle in your name.
2: You've been listening to Truth Transforms with Reverend Galen McDowell. If you have questions or comments about today's program, or if you'd like to join in on the discussion, email us at truthtransforms@unity.fm. at unity.fm. Now back to Truth Transforms.
3: All right, welcome back to Truth Transforms. So we're on page 86, and we're talking about Maria Nemitz's concept of structures of knowing. She wrote, or he writes about this, Within the boundaries of our awareness is everything we know, our thoughts, feelings, beliefs, facts, justifications, and so on. Outside our structures of knowing are the other dimensions of reality beyond our comprehension or conscious thought. What that simply means is this. Have you ever tried to explain something to someone that you thought was simple, but for them it was very difficult for them to grasp, or they couldn't grasp it at all? That's because it's outside of their structures of knowing. They literally can't see it a person will say i I, I just can't see it because they don't understand where you're coming from so one of the things that conflict does is it disrupts your structures of knowing all right he says at the bottom uh of page 86 one positive aspect of conflict is knowing excuse me of conflict is that it moves us to the edge of our structures of knowing he goes on to say On page 87, conflict produces a displacement between what we know and what we do, what we don't know, between what we see and what we don't see. That conflict is great because it forces you to start to expand, start to seek, start to understand something beyond what you currently understand. All right, next paragraph, when you feel unsafe in a particular situation and investigate where the feeling of unsafe comes from, you will discover that this feeling is linked to how you perceive your experience. The feeling arises from what you know, believe, or imagine about the situation. Uncertainty, confusion, and paradox are the outer boundaries of your structures of knowing. So when you start to getting close to your limit of your structures of knowing, you start feeling uncertain. You start ha- to have confusion. And you start to see the paradoxes of life because... You now can't put what you're dealing with into a box of how you know how to handle it. You know, the this is how you handle this box. Once life starts to get bigger than that, then confusion starts to show up. Uncertainty starts to show up. Par- the paradoxes of life start to show up. The fear comes up. You start to feel uneasy. You start to, you start to doubt what you can do or what you can't do because it's outside your structure of knowing or it's pushing the limits of it. All right. He goes on to say at the bottom of that paragraph, when we arrive at the edge of our capacity to make sense of or to define our experience, we are at the threshold of the kingdom of God, the realm of infinite possibilities. Yeah. So once you get past what you know, now you've got to deal with what you don't know, and now you've got to deal with infinite possibilities and probabilities. When you start dealing with the life of possibility, now you're dealing in the present. Now you're in the now. Now you can work with the activity of God in your consciousness. Page 88 states, what is, he says, um, in other words, there must be a distinction drawn between what the real problems are and what has become a problem because of misperception. You got to know the difference. What what are the facts versus what have I what have i created from those facts and have i created a problem that wasn't a problem because of my misperception all right now we're dealing with competition i love this competing needs goals and values sometimes i'll say competing needs wants and values but it's the same thing he says it is it's easy to see that in any relationship there's a mixture of needs wants and priorities When what we want or value gets in the way of someone else, conflict occurs. All right. So only one person is getting the promotion. That can possibly create conflict because more than one person wants the same thing. Sometimes those people can be colleagues, friends. Only one person can get the gold medal in any particular sport. Only one championship team. So I really want you to get this, whether it's soccer, football, basketball, baseball, or whatever sport you
4: play, it can only be one. That can create conflict, okay? A lot of people like the same woman
3: or the same man, but that person hopefully is only choosing one. (laughs) That can create conflict. Going on, it says, when people experience difficulty in in getting what they need and want out of their relationships, they may distance themselves from their partners. All right. In other words, he says, if clear and open channels of communication are absent, people become defensive and endeavor to gain the advantage by gathering evidence to support their positions. So we disengage and we gather evidence to prove we're
4: right. Because we're trying to compete. Even against the people we said I do with, you know, life partners. So when when you're competing against your spouse, nobody wins. Nobody. It's like trying to go, you know, left and right at the same time.
3: Back to the book. It says the danger of competition in relationship is that someone must eventually lose. That's the key. The loser becomes diminished, angry and resentful. The winner loses as well because the reward of being right is the reinforcement of one's inferiority. Winning reinforces inferiority because needing to be right is a behavior that masks or protects one's sense of insecurity or inadequacy. So I got to prove That I'm that I'm okay by making you wrong. But if I'm complete and whole in myself, I can be present to the experience and I can take, as I mentioned in earlier episodes, authentic action based upon
4: my divinity, not based upon my ego. All right. Back to the book.
3: He wrote at the bottom of page 89, if you have to compete to get what you need, you do so at the expense of your own sense of wholeness and worth. Are you competing to get what you need? Some people feel as though they're there in competition. You know, you hear things like, you know, uh, that person's a, a, a mama's boy because they feel as though they're competing with their mother in law for the affection of their husband. It shouldn't ever be a compete competitions. it should just be agreements. These are the agreements that we need to make this work. And. Accountability on those agreements and communication when those agreements are not being handled, that complement each other in any situation and circumstances should be agreement and communication consistently to make sure that it's working. You know, Jack Canfield has a question in uh, his book, The Success Principles, to paraphrase that he basically says when he's working with uh, business partners or with his wife or any relationship, how would you judge our relationship or our agreement from 1 to 10? And he says if a person says it's not a 10, ask them what will it take to get it to a 10. And that's where communication can begin. Because that doesn't mean you do everything the person asks, but but then but you need to know why that person is asking what they're asking for. And sometimes once communication happens and people understand why you do what you do and why they're doing what they do, then agreements can be made where it can still be win-win. But this is why Stephen Covey says in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Back to the book. Defensiveness. He he wrote that defensiveness is a psycho physical dynamic that impacts a relationship directly when you become defensive your whole entire body participates you feel defensiveness you carry it in your physical energy back to the to the bottom of the book he he wrote that by its very definition defensiveness implies the presence of an adversary so the moment you're defensive you think that there's somebody or something against you He says, uh, when a person's defenses are activated, people distance themselves from one another. We mentally put and emotionally put up our dukes. In other words, we put our fists up to fight for those who don't live in the United States. He says, defensiveness on page 91 is linked to the fight or flight response. This primitive survival tactic plays out in our daily lives in subtle and not so subtle ways. Each of us is conditioned to relate to conflict in a particular manner. So in other words our defensiveness and how we deal with conflict has a lot to do with how we've experienced life in the past and
4: what we've learned or what we did to protect ourselves from pain. So in other words, we're seeing life the way we see life. All right.
3: He, he wrote defensiveness is evidence of separation. When I am threatened and com- to protect myself, I instinctively instinctively distance myself from my adversary. He says defensiveness can only be shunted at its root, resistance. The instant I feel threatened or wrong, I start pushing away. Pushing the situation away never never works. Resistance moves quickly into defensiveness and self-protection. So he wrote on page 92, you can overcome the forces of conditioning, he gives some of the reasons why he says, because you are a spiritual being, because your wholeness is you can direct your attention, your attention. And I would say attention and intention. You can direct your attention and awareness to your center, your spiritual self, and bring the attributes of the center to the experience of the storm. So what that looks like in everyday life is, yeah, you're going through stuff and you have to remind yourself yourself. I'm a spiritual being living in a spiritual universe governed by spiritual law. I'm perfect, whole, and complete right here and right now. God in me knows what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. You have to remind yourself of those things. So he wrote uh, that you are not your parts. Because we compartmentalize our lives so much that we start to think that we are our parts. He says, think about your life on page 93 and how it seems to be compartmentalized. See, we even compartmentalize God. God is a part of my church life or my prayer life, but not a part of my regular life, not a part of my work life. But God is. How does God show up as an employee? Not by being an evangelist at work, trying to convert people to your Bible study. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't do that based upon your work laws, follow your policies and procedures and HR rules. What it shows up is, how do I show up as love? How do I show up as peace? How am I the example of this? So When I do talk about what helps me and how my life has been transformed by
4: what I do, it has impact. All right. All right. All right.
3: Page 95. You are not your experiences. He goes, he wrote, your first step in discovering wholeness is seeing the distinction between you and your experiences. He's, he wrote, you have experiences, but you are not your experiences. You make the mistake of seeing your experiences as your parts like hands and feet. You have body parts, but your body parts don't have you. The reason why wholeness seems so elusive is that your base you base your sense of well-being and worth on what is happening or not happening to you. You confuse your experiences with yourself. You think you are not whole based upon how your life looks and feels. Mm. But he wrote, this keeps you looking in the wrong places for a wholeness that can only be experienced as the attribute of authentic being in the act of conscious doing. So you can never find your wholeness in what you do. You can never shop yourself to wholeness. You can never love yourself. Not love. I mean, I say love. You can never sex your way to wholeness. You can never... Uh, Ego boosts your way in, or perform your way to wholeness. Your wholeness is an
4: aspect of your spiritual spirituality. So it doesn't make a difference how much you boost your ego up. So we need to be mindful of that. All right. Now,
3: we've run out of time. So yet again, keep reading the book. Make sure you do the aware questions on pages 97 and 98. Make sure that you go back, listen to the previous podcast, do the work. Make sure you do the question, do the aware of the questions at the end of each chapter. They will help you transcend because you got to get into yourself. So when you start writing, you start pulling stuff out of your own soul. So do the work. God bless you. And I'll be with you next
4: week with truth transforms. God bless. Take care.
1: Inspiration only takes a moment. Take a moment now to reflect on these words from Rev. Joan Gattuso. According to an ancient Hindu teaching, if you can only speak the truth and tell no lies, either minuscule or outrageous, for 12 consecutive years you can attain enlightenment. A noble being will always tell the truth. Do you? Begin now with the first step of simply noticing if you do tell the truth immediately or if your first instinct is to alter the facts a bit. Resolve to be honest with yourself and others starting today. And after 4,383 days, you just may become enlightened.
2: This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity.
1: Every moment we live can be holy, and all we need to do to experience that state is to make the decision to do so. Everything we do can be a prayer, and by using our innate creativity with intention, in every aspect of our lives that can indeed be true. Author Carla Cannon wrote, Creativity is so much more than art making. It is a tool for navigating through everyday experiences to find the sacred in each God-given moment. Discover Creative Spirit Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Central Time and experience the joy of connecting to spirit through creative expression.